Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Matthew Ritchie. The Frist Art Museum in Nashville is presenting Matthew Ritchie, A Garden in the Flood, a survey of the last 20 years of Ritchie's career. The exhibition shows how Ritchie has brought together biology, physics, creation stories, lots of creation stories, epic poetry and history across painting, sculpture, video, and installation. The core of the exhibition is a new Ritchie video work featuring composer Hannah Benn in collaboration with the Fisk Jubilee Singers and their late music director, Dr. Paul T. Kwame. The exhibition was curated by Mark Scala and is on view through March 5th. An exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Books in association with the Frist. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about 50 bucks. Richie shows a lot everywhere all the time, but his most recent institutional solo exhibitions have been at the CVAD Galleries at the University of North Texas, the Moody Center for the Arts at Rice University, and the ICA Boston. Matthew Ritchie for the full program after the break. I'm delighted to announce the next Modern Art Notes podcast live taping. It'll be with artist Monique Verdun at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University on February 16th. Verdun is among the artists featured in Spirit in the Land, a forthcoming Nasher exhibition that examines present ecological concerns from a cultural perspective and that demonstrates how our identities and natural environments are intertwined. We'll be presenting the live taping in association with the folks at the Nasher at 4 p.m. on Thursday, February 16th, the day the exhibition opens to the public. Please join us for Monique Verdan and Spirit in the Land on February 16th at the Nasher. On view through February 19th, 2023 at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Opening on February 12th, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents I'll Be Your Mirror, Art and the Digital Screen. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition examines the screen's vast impact on art from 1969 to the present, including more than 60 works by 50 artists. Artists including Corey Archangel, Lynn Hirschman Leeson, Hito Sterl, and Hassan Alahi examine screen culture through a broad range of media, such as paintings, sculpture, video games, digital art, augmented reality, and video. Screens affect nearly every aspect of life today. Their pervasiveness has bred a 24-7 breaking news cycle, the looming corporate-sponsored virtual reality metaverse, unlimited accessibility and content, and an ease in how ideas and images are distributed, undoubtedly shaping culture in profound ways. The exhibition starts in 1969, the year of the televised Apollo moon landing and the launch of the internet's prototype ARPANET, and continues through the present. I'll be your mirror, art, and the digital screen at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through April 30th. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, showcasing the renowned photographer's never-before-seen photographs and footage of Black Power leader Stokely Carmichael for Life magazine. Parks had a prolific career as the first Black staff member at Life, and his artistry extended to writing, film, and music. Parks captures the true essence of the African-American experience and the civil rights movement. El Italia calls this presentation, quote, 
one of the 10 exhibitions not to be missed this fall around the world. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash gordonparks. And we're back. Matthew Ritchie, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Is there a relationship between your interest in creation, say, of the universe, although that's far from the only kind of creation that you've addressed in your work, and artistic creation, your making of things? Absolutely. I think that artists are inherently, it's been said before, it's almost a cliche that every artist is kind of a little god. And the more you look into the kind of question of like primary material the more the fundamental questions you know what am i doing here why am i doing this what on earth is going on anyway become sort of essential questions in the studio just as much as they are in the alleged content of the work so as far as i can remember you've been interested in origin stories and creation myths since at least the mid-1990s And in recent years, you've moved on to explore other creation, not quite stories, but constructs, such as the Leighton Garden suite of work at the Frist, which we'll talk about a little later on, I think. How far back do you remember your interest in creation stories going? Secondary school, college? (laughs) I think it comes out of being a a first-generation immigrant in New York in the early 90s. I got to New York in 87 and had to kind of really refined who I was. And part of this is a sort of mini personal legend. I was working as a building superintendent and just up the street, this was in Soho when such a thing was possible, was uh, NYU. The students would put out all their books at the end of every year. This is when students had textbooks, so principles of modern chemistry. And all the things that I'd ignored in secondary school and primary school was suddenly sort of there. And as a, the one thing you have as a building super is a lot of time and no money. So I picked up these textbooks and sort of made myself a little library and kind of went through an extended period of like rethinking about how it all fit together. And this was before the internet. So it was kind of a, this was like my knowledge source. And I think I glued that together, you know, that sense of like arrival in this for me, new country, you know, the sort of mythology of the new world with the sort of end of the 20th century. And then all the things you bring from Europe, which are all these myths that go back and back and back for thousands and thousands of years, all of which are often used as justifications for the sort of most awful behavior and fantasies of power. And that all tied together with a couple of very influential artists for me, Carl Walker and Matthew Barney, who were both beginning a kind of their own creation myths. And I remember thinking that I had been sort of given permission to, to tell a story. I started as a writer writing for flash art. So I was telling stories about these artists. And then I was like, you know, I can tell my own story. And my version of that as a European is sort of embedded in a lot of very weird shit. And so I kind of started to, and because I had this little funny little library, I was like, well, I'll make the, I'll tell the story again of kind of everything. And this was a time when in cosmology, there was still like a printed edition of Scientific American that was on newsstands when we had newsstands. And pretty much every month in the front page of the New York Times were these announcements about string theory and the changes. And this is also when the New York Times had a legitimate science That's section. That's right. That's right. Every week, once a week. Yeah. And it was like kind of a big thing. And they had these beautiful illustrations. And I felt very powerfully a sense that we were both at the end of a kind of period as as the internet emerged and the the beginning of what at the time was being, we were being persuaded was going to be this universal sort of access to knowledge. It really felt like that. Of course, that turned out to be a bit of an illusion. So I've read you talk about science before, and I get all that. But one of the foundational works of the Western tradition is a creation story. You know, think of, for example, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling. Did you then, as you were working as as a building super and thinking about art of very much of your time, I mean, Kara Walker and Matthew Barney were, were young artists at that point. Did you 
understand or draw connections between your emergent interest in kind of creation science, if you will, and creation within art historical traditions? Yeah, the almost the very first like legitimate. I mean, here's a, a sort of funny one of those like funny anecdotes that people like to go back and examine myself more puzzling than anything else was as a building super. I knew another artist, Alex Ross, who was also a building oh, super. Yeah. And, was he and, he, <laughs> <laughs> and so we were part of the building super mafia, which meant we had access to all these cheap spaces. He was working for an artist called Julian Lethbridge who had previously worked for, and at that time was still very much involved with Jasper Johns. And he had a building on Howard street and, Alex kindly offered me the use of a space there for a few months because it was empty. And with the sort of words, oh, you know, you're going to be using the space that Terry Winters used to paint in. So I was like, well, that's a legendary space. And there was this table there covered in dried paint that was Terry Winters paint. And, you know, it's like a sacred icon at this, this point in the early 90s, Terry Winters dried oil paint. Then he said after a month or so, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, there's another artist who's going to share the space with you. And this was a British artist called Damien Hurst. I was like, oh, I've heard of him. <laughs> so Damien sort of shares this space with me. And this is before I'm exhibiting work or and just speaking to your point of like how this all sort of came together. It's much more arbitrary than anyone might imagine. I was just trying to figure out what on earth it was that I was doing. So I was making these very strange big diagrams based on medieval philosophy. And there's a point in medieval philosophy, something called Occam's razor that your, your listeners will doubtless know because Sherlock Holmes is always talking about it. So that's invented by this monk called William of Occam, who is the prototype character in the name of the rose by Umberto Eco. And William of Occam invents kind of modern logic out of scholasticism. Uh, among other things, and also the kind of modern sense of the self and the democratic self in that he's a Franciscan monk, as is shown in the name of the rose. And the Franciscan monks are the first people to refuse the papal right of property ownership by the monks. They don't want to own monasteries or anything, really. It sort of goes against their vows to God. And so there's this fantastic period in history where William of Ockham is basically being sued by the Pope and has to go to papal court. And there's all kinds of confusion. There's two popes at one point. But out of it comes this beautiful set of arguments about what is a person allowed to do as an individual, what decisions are they allowed to make about themselves. And so, believe it or not, that was actually the work I was working on Well, Damien Hurst and I were sharing a space. And he comes in one day and he sees these very complicated, sort of insane-looking diagrams and goes, yeah, you're completely mad, mate. I mean, this is, <laughs> <laughs> I still cherish this moment of being called <laughs> like a raving lunatic by Damien Hurst. And I, I sort of realize that I'm kind of got to kind of really reboot the whole idea. If I'm going to be, I'm not really a practicing artist at this point. I'm writing for flash art, but I'm just kind of toiling away on this very, very esoteric project. And so I was like, well, I've got to get my shit together. So I made this chart of all the things I was interested in. And this became something called the working model, which was in my first show with Stefano Basilico, which was this diagram that I think gave people a, both a kind of sense of comfort that here was someone who was looking at science and art and all these things at the same time, but also the illusion that I had sort of invented it was very present as well. Whereas what it really was, was a kind of index of parallel terms that had evolved over the last several thousand years, where a Greek letter for psi, for example, which is, looks like a little trident, then was translated in the middle period of the Middle Ages into a symbol for the devil's trident, and then later becomes a symbol for uncertainty in Schrodinger's equation. So what I was really interested in was this process of translation across multiple myths rather than what was happening simultaneously in the art world, which was a, a series of self-creation myths. But in a way, that was my way to do that. And I think those two kinds of arguments are kind of inextricably linked in the sense that all cultures, in a sense, make up their own creation story. 
out of the residues of all the previous cultures. And then they retroactively justify that as a kind of mythology. It's a way that their kind of storytelling becomes, I think it was Barth or someone, is the story is how, I'm paraphrasing here, but how the story is, myth is how, you know, a kind of ideology becomes history. It becomes mythologized. So I think that that notion of the creation myth, you know, whether you're looking at Michelangelo or Picasso in the studio or, or any artist sort of identifying themselves as a kind of creative source point is always wrapped up in this other thing, which very much comes from me being in art school in the 80s, which was we were, you know, it was drummed into us. This is postmodernism. That's just this huge pile of fragments in a hole of mirrors and we as a culture constantly just reassemble them to justify our own particular historical experiences. I love the idea of you being obsessed with birth and creation, being found crazy by Damien Hirst, who, of course, was obsessed with death and endings. <laughs> um, <laughs> one, more, one more creation question before we move on. You have been interested and fascinated by John Milton's Paradise Lost since at least the 1990s. It's in, you know, you talk about it at great length and with great specificity in interviews you did in the 90s. You know, Milton and Paradise Lost were hugely important in American art of the late 1840s and 50s. You know, a very different America, one much more obsessed with Protestantism than, than it is now. And, you know, as you've just been describing your interests stem substantially from science and big science. So how did you come to land on a Christian text like Paradise Lost and find it of interest? Well, Paradise Lost is one of those strange things that most people haven't read, but everyone's sort of heard of. And it's for those that haven't read it, it's a prequel to the Bible, which is just, I love that. It's just such a funny idea. That, you know, there's this guy in a very, very religious time and he's like, you know what the Bible needs is a prequel. No one's really explained how the Garden of Eden happens and, you know, who Satan is and all this beautiful stuff. But he's also at the dawn of the scientific revolution. So in Paradise Lost, there's all these kind of mini tracts about mining and astronomy. He's describing the celestial motions, all this stuff that's kind of emerging in the sciences. He's right on the cusp of that. And so there's a kind of, he, he's an encyclopedicist. Is that a word? I sort of save people a lot of time reading it. You can sort of skip all the parts where he starts going on and on and on about X, Y, or Z subject. Because he's really just trying to wrap everything up. And part of that is he also includes all the ancient myths. So in, in hell, he includes a very, very long list of all of the, basically the gods of the ancient world have all now been translated into the demons of the new world. And I love this kind of, oh, I'm a sucker for a synthesis, you know, because that's when all the systems start to break down. Like there's no kind of logic to it once you start amassing all of these stories. And by a sort of just the kind of weird coincidence that you have growing up in a, a small country like England, I also went to Milton school. Not that anyone at the time told me that or that we ever read Paradise Lost there. It's just sort of a, I also grew up pretty near where William of Ockham grew up because it's, you know, it's a small country and everything happened in London uh, at the time. But there's a kind of sense that you are in England growing up when I did, you're on the perimeter of Europe. And so you're part of this kind of odd lineage, which is a very bad art lineage, but a very great lineage of writers, of thinkers, sort of questioning. Like it's a, what, what I love about the text going back in is it, it's, he begins every chapter with what he calls an argument. The book is called The Arguments in some, some ways early on. And there's a kind of argumentative quality to the whole text. And that's a kind of an interrogation, even the idea of, you know, I'm just this guy, but I'm going to write a prequel to the Bible. I mean, it's basically heresy. And this is why I think Byron said, you know, Milton was of the devil's party, but did not know it. So the kind of elevation of this argumentative figure, which is later begins as God's right hand, the angel Lucifer, and then gradually devolves through the text into a kind of animalistic state as the kind of writer's voice. You know, it's basically he's chosen the most argumentative, difficult person 
which again goes back to an earlier version of this in the the Torah, where you know Satanel is literally translates as the adversary, which was a kind of legal representative of the opposing point of view in the court of heaven. And that, in turn, you know, I, I love all these echoes where you start to find in science and myth correspondences between you start to see the social structures emerge out of the mythology. Like every society needs people who aren't just yes men, who aren't just saying absolutely boss and who are arguing for freedom and for the potential of freedom and then all the problems that arise from that. So I think Paradise Lost is just as it, by an accident of of biography and location there's probably other texts but it is notoriously sort of one of those texts that articulates this question of really if everything was made in a deterministic way what role does the artist or the the creator the demiurge has been sometimes called the co-creator have in changing that story and so the the argument of paradise lost is ultimately about free will well, speaking of uh, the artist in Paradise Lost, at the heart of, I mean, like literally the, the middle of the Frist show is a work you've been compiling, if that's the right word, over many years called The Arguments. And it's Miltonian for lots of reasons, including that you've kind of built it on the same armature that Milton built Paradise Lost. And so it's a work, it's, it's very much a total artwork. It's got video and animation and drawing and the physical intensity of a certain physical space and, and lots of, you know, makes sense as something in the middle of a big show. When you began that project, however many years ago, was it mindfully and intentionally Miltonian? <laughs> well, Cause, cause, and I, I ask because that seems like an awful big swing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not still not. I mean, I, if by Miltonian we can sort of say an awfully big swing, then yeah, like that's the, I think that's what I like about Milton, but it's also what I like about working with scientists and rock stars and other, you know, people with enormous dancers, sweep, philosophers, dancers. Groups. Yeah. It's sort of the nature of being an artist is to take a big, almost absurdly big swings you can listen to a David Bowie song, right? And it's about the Berlin Wall. And you're like... But let me, let me interrupt for just one second. Because <laughs> in the last 15 years of the art world, big swings have been a little bit out of vogue. Fair point. <laughs> um, but in the late 90s, for That's example... True. That's true. This, this is where I, I, I suppose uh, there was an enormously generous and optimistic moment. Artists as like Olafur Eliasson, say, taking on climate change. is very much a kind of weakness of my generation i mean that in the most generous sense like we we had a a fantasy that the big swings were permitted and of course they can be reductive and kind of like overbroad but there's something very romantic about that big swing as well but i'll i'll go back to your question cuz you know i i do obviously i do struggle with that as a british person there's a sort of innate reluctance to admit ambition of any sort <laughs> that's a kind of dirty word in print <laughs> In, in the wake of them. Yes, go yeah. on. <laughs> but at the same time, there's this precedent of, I think that maybe that's why people like Milton, you know, Shakespeare, you know, you're welcome, kind of, you know, invents like all of the English sort of like expressive forms in a, in one lifetime. And we're still obsessed with his his practice, you know, or Jane Austen. You know, they're, they're all, there's this kind of a notion of a, I suppose what I question and, and value in your question, and, and I've always sort of tried to interrogate, especially in this, this cumulative project, is this notion of can a project be both very large and all-encompassing and still be self-critical in the way that the sciences are? And that the piece, the arguments, is an enormous uh, wall drawing about 80 feet long, which contains in it fragments of all the previous wall drawings I've ever done as well. And at the very start, it had sense on the wall of the Randall syndrome 5D, which is a reference to Lisa Randall's gravitational theory. And she and I collaborated on opera, which was one of the very first of these projects. And talk about a big swing. I mean, that was the second most cited paper uh, in physics that year. And she basically proposed 
she and Sundram proposed a new model of the entire universe. I mean, there's no, you know, you can't really have kind of false modesty in science and, and take the big swings. And that's something I, I love about science is it's, it does have this vast romantic poetry in it. And in the opera, which is one of the 10 films in the arguments, two characters argue about the nature of space-time itself. So I think that was when I was first intrigued by the possibility that if that can happen sort of in the dimension of science, what, can, what other questions can be asked in the dimensions of art and history and dance and music, each one of which has a kind of almost like an emotional relationship and a kind of spiritual relationship to its source material. Scientists are very pragmatic about their work, but they're very, I found they're very deeply, they're believers, right, in science. They don't walk around going, oh, I think science is a bit dodgy the way we do in the art world. They're like, science is amazing. <laughs> yeah, their, their, grant from, their grant proposals are uh, have more zeros and are more ambitious. Yeah, yeah right. And we're like, I, I think I could finish up a couple of paintings with that cash. <laughs> They're like, how, why don't we build a super collider, you know, over. So talking to scientists, they talk very freely about intergenerational projects that can take hundreds of years of work building upon previous iterations. So I think that's something I really learned to admire and in science and tried to bring into this question of kind of iterative filmmaking. Because so I was making projects always in collaboration. All of the projects and the arguments are collaborations with other workers in different fields. And to try and ask what was the big question, what was the argument they were making, rather than sort of lay it all out. I didn't, I certainly didn't have any kind of overarching map. I was much more interested in the question of potentials and what would happen over time if you started to add up these different dimensional inquiries. So the project I did that probably has, I think three or four of the films were collaborations with Bryce Desner, who was a composer and a member of a group called The National. And so he had already two sort of very large projects of his own that he was generous enough to sort of ask me to participate in. And he and his brother Aaron and I made a opera about Mayan cosmology called The Long Count about in 2010, I think, which itself is another sort of very vast, you know, inquiry into the nature of cyclical time and mythology. And that's sort of another, just an example of how I wasn't really directing the flow, just following deep interests of my own into cultures and manifestations of, of very powerful questions that remain unanswered. And I think that piece culminates in the, in the Nashville show, the arguments culminates in a collaboration. So I, well, I tend to approach each collaboration with trying to ask, like, what is the kind of the big question underlying the collaboration in the sense of what's the discussion we can have? And of course, being invited to do a show in Nashville, famously Music City, I was like, oh, so that's where the the kind of the discussion begins and it took me a while to to learn that music city is named music city because of the fist jubilee singers and that was because queen victoria going back to my roots couldn't remember where they were from so she just said they were from when she saw the fist jubilee singers on their their famous world tour so she said oh they're from music city and hence nashville was was named this is an apocryphal tale of course or origin story, he notes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another kind of, and the and of course the Fist Jubilee singers are kind of a self-created. Both their songs are very much about kind of self-creation and endurance and resilience, but they're also something that was invented out of the ruins of the Civil War. Amazing tale. I'm. Sh I don't know how many of your audience will will know this, but they were basically a small group of enslaved persons who had been freed and a music director called Mr. White, amazingly enough, uh, wanted to bring this music that he'd heard that had never really been written down to the world. I'm paraphrasing here, but they went off on a, a first tour that was not terribly successful, singing essentially songs that had been sung by enslaved peoples in the fields as inspirational songs, the Jubilee songs. And they did not sing the, the sort of songs that have become very famous 
like Wade in the Water. Those were called the sort of secret songs. And then they went on a second tour where they became world famous. And they saw Queen Victoria and raised $150,000, which built Jubilee Hall, which is the sort of foundational building of Fisk University. And of course, I, I was, knew some of this, but not all of it. Um, working with them and their amazing director, Dr. Paul Kwame, was able to sort of dive a lot deeper and actually immerse myself by, through their generosity by, by being at Fisk and recording and making the film and animation there. So this, these sort of questions had actually a beautiful, another historical resonance in that I'd read a historian called Paul Gilroy's work who wrote a little bit about the Fisk Jubilee Singers as part of his analysis of sort of diasporic uh, singing and how it could form a kind of nucleus for a new kind of internationalism, which itself had resonances with W.B. Du Bois's sort of idea of a kind of international Black Atlantic diaspora. And there, so there's an, you know, emerging out of, again, sort of the abyss of the Civil War, there's this kind of amazing tale of resilience and survival and joy. So this ultimately seemed to me to be the most incredible opportunity. And uh, I went to, to Dr. Kwame and sort of the, the museum were generous enough. They'd, they'd worked with him before to facilitate an introduction. And, you know, he was just this wonderful person who very sadly passed away unexpectedly this fall. An incredible loss for the whole community. But was willing to take a risk with this essentially a complete stranger and with a very strange idea that we would collaborate as I've done with all these other people on a song, which called the garden and the flood, which is also the title of the show. And my sort of secret weapon was a friend of mine called Shara Nova had recommended a composer called Hannah Ben who had a family connection to the Fist Jubilee singers. So it gave a kind of a little bit of extra leverage I think. Otherwise, I'm not sure I would have gotten in the door there. But as a result, I think it was probably the, the culminating collaboration of all of these works was this extraordinarily beautiful soundscape by Hannah Ben, this new gospel song sung by the Fist Jubilee singers uh, that sort of floats through all the galleries. And then we made a film that goes with it of the singers being translated through machine learning into kind of database, which itself, I taught a class at Fisk University during this project on the idea of the data portrait, which is something that W.B. Du Bois worked on and did these beautiful, extraordinary portraits of essentially black life at the turn of this century. And working, I think, at Emory or one of the, or Atlanta University, with a team for the Paris Exposition. So these data portraits are amazingly contemporary. They look like Russian constructivist paintings. And they're part of a whole series of kind of diagrammatic inventions that take place all over the world at, as part of the sort of, in, as the Industrial Revolution turns over into the 20th century and becomes sort of modernism. There's lots of versions of these kinds of extraordinary diagrams, but these are among the most beautiful. And that's all tied in with this kind of emergence of modernity, the Fist Jubilee singers traveling the world, electrification. And Du Bois writes this very funny science fiction story at the time, which was my sort of generator for the story of the song, like the lyrics are partly based on this tale he writes called The Princess Steel, which is a kind of oddly prescient and also retrogressive story. It's, you know, one, these, this young couple going to visit a scientist and he's got a, a kind of machine that's like the first version of the internet, even though it's, you know, the late 1900s. And it's also a time machine. They, one of them, they fall into a, a kind of dream and one of them travels forward in time where he sees a world overrun by wires and a kind of cybernetic woman. And then, Strangely, the story takes a sudden right-angle turn and there's knights jousting. And it's absolutely bizarre. Suffice to say, Du Bois did not become famous as a science fiction writer. 
but it's an amazing story. So the, one of the couple see, sees this vision, and the other one is asked. She's like, he turns to his wife, and he's like, did you did you see all all this amazing stuff? And she's like, no, I just heard the sound of the sea beyond the hills. So the the lyrics of the song are about the sound of the roaring sea and this notion of resilience and building a garden in the flood, which is a, bringing the whole thing back to the kind of Miltonian ambition. The end of Paradise Lost, which very few people will even get to, is a vision of the future uh, vouchsafed by the angel to Adam of the great flood, the world completely covered in water. So it's got a kind of eerie sort of echo in Nashville, particularly, which has you know terrible floods. So part of the film was we used drone footage of floods, Tennessee flooding in and around Nashville. Talk about for a minute how generous and kind it was of the singers to participate who were really all students at Fisk University. And what an extraordinary group of young people they were to show up and sing this song uh, and allow me, you know, how I'm just so, I know this is, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, how artists have started to sound like you know, other people on TV. But this is one of those rare moments in life where you have to sort of express your deep gratitude for a community engaged in an incredibly specialized form of practice to allow you in to make something new. It was really quite an extraordinary thing to sit in this chapel and record them singing this song and these words over and over again, which, which drift all through the exhibition. So I think in terms of the show in Nashville, that's the defining work for me. And I, I, I just wanted to express my you know, deep gratitude to them. Tennessee River runs right through the heart of the city. So shifting radically, well, all of these big ideas and big addresses might be at risk of kind of flying away, except that you are a terrifically handsy mark maker. You know, your, your, your work, whether, you know, whatever format it takes, whether it's a room-sized sculpture or a painting, is, is made from kind of these very minute, controlled marks. And, you know, I, I think if there's one thing that's pretty constant across, you know, the last 20 or 25 years of your work, it's, you know, the simple use of, say, a Sharpie on canvas, on, on, on building up from small marks. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. What helped you understand that even within super big ideas, that handsy mark making, often really small marks, could be important? Yeah, and I, I think this question of mark making is so fundamentally strange when you think about the diversity of marks in art historical practice between the, the utter kind of smoothness of certain kinds of late Renaissance work or, or a David painting where the mark becomes invisible in the service of a kind of production of a, a kind of waxy figure or in the super expressive mark making of the 1940s and 1950s where the mark itself is sort of held to be a kind of almost like primordial representation of universal consciousness. So I, I suppose what I've always thought was very interesting coming from a culture that was primarily literary, you know, where the mark is the letter, is that in a way, and I, I went to an art school that was founded by a guy called William Coldstream, who perfected this very odd sort of picture making, which is like a kind of atomized cubism where everything was identified in a kind of coordinate space with little tiny dots and um, a Coldstream painting is full of all these little registration marks, almost like a kind of Doppler or radar of the space. And the figure is built out of these little registration marks. So I suppose one of the, the, the big questions that I've always thought about is to what degree any mark is carrying or conveying information and what kind of information that is. And you can sort of go either way from there. You know, you can say, oh, a Twombly is has no information or a Tombly where he's obviously writing words has very specific information that you're supposed to read, you know, Alexander's name. And that is a tradition that carries on uh, in a lot of my work. I, I write on the surface 
coming out of that tradition, but it's also a tradition that goes back to Hellenistic painting, which has, in the wall paintings, has quite distinct notations of who the characters are. So you just so you know who they are and that this is a, a meaning machine. So I, I think that question of the mark, as it travels across this vast expanses of time, something I've thought about a lot. And then you find yourself in this very odd position of having your own mark, which is, except for a few very gifted practitioners, probably not exactly the mark you maybe hoped you had. You know, <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think I always hoped I would have a kind of, you know, Bryce Mardeny kind of lanky, kind of elegant mark. Or failing that, a kind of Amy Silman, you know, kind of that beautiful hooked kind of cartoonish shape. Or, you know, Cecily Brown has that beautiful kind of like dodgy kind of daub that she does, where you're like, how is that even holding a shape? You know, but it cumula accumulates into shapes. And I've got this thing that I don't exactly know what it is. It's a sort of basically a, a line that sort of goes a bit around the corner and then does a bit to the left. And it's sort of like writing and it's sort of like drawing. And it's even when I'm painting, as especially in the, the, the newer works, it always wants to turn itself into what I think of as a kind of a knot, like, a, like it's trying to describe a kind of knotted space. Like it's always trying to coil around itself, but it doesn't quite know where the the loop is, you know, so it's sort of a bit like a diagram of a knot. I have this impulse to always want the mark to mean something. But since the thing that I'm trying for it to mean is utterly abstract and beyond my reach, that becomes a kind of guessing game. You know, it's, it's trying to describe something that is invisible to me, even as I'm trying to describe it. And that effort to describe the invisible, futile though it is, is probably what underlies the whole project. That sounds very Julie Merritt too. Like your your marks are similar to hers, and I think that's a sentence she could have said. That's very gracious of you. I mean, I, I wish my marks were similar to her. She has a kind of almost like a mark, like the weather, just kind of appears and scatters across the surface. I always find it it's much more of a yeah. Maybe every artist feels this way. It looks like every other artist is is doing it much more easily and more beautiful than you are than yourself. <laughs> I want to talk about paintings as as objects a bit because I find that in the interviews you've done over the years, people move on from that really quick. The show at the Frist starts with a painting from 2000 called M Theory. And I think one of the more pictorially significant changes that have happened since those early paintings is those early paintings are built from flat planes of color that are amalgamated into heaving and spiraling and whirling compositions that ultimately remain put pretty flat. The author and editor Jennifer Ber Berman called these pictures from, from around that time, quote, flattened cubes, which is so good I wish I'd thought of it first. And then within a couple years, by like 2002 or three, and really increasing ever since, those flat planes have given way to diaphanous, transparent, deep, layers of color and almost spray, if you will. So to look at the surface of your pictures isn't to see a surface, it's to see many surfaces and, and, and to see through layers. And so that seems like a significant change and transition to me. Was it for you? Yes, uh, that was a, a big shift. I think around the early 2000s, the work began to loosen up, partly because a lot of my practices derived from or sort of like like everyone else from other visual materials so that there was an evolution in I was very interested in com computational space as a parallel to painting and how it was changing and the early kind of models of gaming space were all kind of big blocky cubic shapes sort of pseudo cubes pseudo solids and they the texture mapping just got better and gaming space got better and sort of that space that we kind of another parallel I'm always fascinated by is the relationship of sort of special effects in films. And if you look at a movie like the lawnmower man, which is, you know, I don't know if you remember that movie. No, I, I'm, 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 you know, I haven't seen a movie in 20 years, so I'm always, I always blush when the guest brings up movies. Well, lawnmower <laughs> man is really worth checking out for its special effects because it's a kind of early cyberspace movie along with uh, there's another movie with Michael Douglas 
cool i forgot what it's called but he goes into cyberspace and one with keanu reeves there were a number of these in the mid 90s efforts to sort of describe to show you what it was like inside cyberspace and they were all using kind of tron like solids you know, these kind of big blocky solids to show organic shapes and they all look first they looked amazing at the time then they looked terrible because they were super dated and now they look amazing again because you can sort of see it's like a Piero de la Francesca effort to like describe geometric space with these very simple, pure geometric forms. And this was also going on in parallel in scientific literature because that's, they were using the same kind of engines. So that's the other source I was looking at all the time. It's like, how do we describe abstract forces? So I have a kind of very Catholic idea of like what constitutes the range of human visual production that I'm trying to encompass in the paintings and then it, it all shifts really fast as game engines get better and graphics engines get better and photoshop gets better and suddenly i think it was laurie anderson who said that digital space will only be good when they can include digital dirt and they figured out to put in digital dirt and so this thing called particle physics emerges in that space so this is a kind of technical way of saying like the, so there's this source shift for me and then in the real world the kind of gaudy certainties of the late 90s what well, Fukuyama calls the end of history and the triumph of capitalism. Suddenly, it's September 11th, and the very clear, brightly lit geometric solids of the World Trade Center, which are the defining geographic feature of downtown Manhattan, where I lived, are dissolved and become particles. And the world that, you know, I had a studio down there, and the air is filled with ash, and everything is covered with, with particles and that's human beings, you know, that's atomized human beings and buildings. So there's a huge kind of shift, not only in the way we're representing ourselves, but then suddenly I think that line from the Communist Manifesto, all that is solid melts into air, became kind of very powerful shift for me in how I saw the world sort of essentially pulverized and and liquefied. So, you know, a kind of a double impetus towards this atomization and suddenly seeing really the kind of the, the many layers under the skin of what have been a very, you know, people called them skins in video games. So it was literally these skins and just kind of dissolved. And so I started to think about how I could represent that really a much more porous reality than those kind of walled off surfaces. That, that's really interesting because at about the same time, your palette changes too. And your palette has, has mostly stayed within a range kind of ever since. So starting around 2002, your palette becomes full of greens and browns, which for me read as the colors of biological or organic material. And then um, in the last half decade, other colors have come in and we'll get to that in a moment. Those early planar flattened cube paintings had more colors, and then and, and then after that, the greens and the browns. So, I am stumbling toward asking why greens and browns, which which by the <laughs> way are back in your newest work. I mean, there's like two different, you know, as you can tell, I love to tell a yarn, and so <laughs> a lot of the the ways I can talk about the work, artists spend a lot of time by themselves, you know, so you have to tell yourself a story. One of the things I did at the start of the project on that strange little chart was to identify color relationships of certain kinds of stories, you know, historically allied with certain kinds of colors. So obviously, you know, you can say, well, blood, red, right? Everyone kind of gets that historically. Then you get blue for the sky. Well, that becomes a little more problematic. Some cultures like the Hellenistic cultures didn't really talk about blue. They just talked about versions of green It kind of so the sky was a kind of, because they were really, everything was kind of organized around the, the ocean. But other cultures, like England, green is like very much identified with nature. That's a much more common thing. Blue, it's not so stable. And then you have yellow, which is like a kind of admixture of colors, but everyone kind of identifies it with the sun, in some sort of, or gold. So I'd, I'd split all these colors up into little stories. So once the world started getting mixed up, the kind of secondary colors, like the greens and the yellows and the blues, started becoming much more logical 
grounds for the, the storytelling, that the story I was telling myself. And there was also a kind of strong pull towards in that moment of kind of dissolution where I don't quite know if you remember or were in New York at that time, but there was a kind of horror at the Bush administration, which was not really a, a New York point of view. I don't, the, the atmosphere in New York wasn't about let's now go murder lots of people in foreign countries, but that was what Washington decided was the appropriate response. And there was a, for me anyway, and I think a lot of people, a kind of tremendous sense of mourning for this disruption of what seemed like a kind of safe haven, and then a kind of existential horror at what then turned out to be, you know, a decade of, of mass murder and American adventurism in parts of the world that had nothing to do with 9-11 at all. And that didn't seem like a kind of color palette that I was going to be showing with like, you know, peppy reds and pinks and oranges and pale blues. <laughs> it seemed much more about kind of how the body had somehow this kind of sort of, if you think about green and you think about the human body, it, green is not a color that we want associated with the human body, right? If you see any part of your body going green, you're like, that is very bad. <laughs> we like green trees, good, green humans, bad. So I saw this kind of interpenetration in a lot of the paintings that were I was making about that as a kind of oceanic decay in a way. You know, like the, it was like the body kind of dissolving into kind of rot. But out of rot is also, you know, a kind of regenerative process. So you have to hope that out of this rotting corpse comes something new. Like it's, it's also sporing and kind of spreading itself. So there's a, there's a complex, maybe a slight, slightly more organic relationship to history emerging as well. History is not this bright, shiny toy. It's a, it's a growing thing that's rotting and changing at the same time. It's interesting you mention reds and blues, though, because in the mid to late 2010s, you let the reds and blues back in, in, in paintings like <laughs> E-Version. Yeah, I mean, wow, you've really paid a lot of attention to this, which is delightful, because those paintings are from a series called Time Diagrams I made for a show at the Moody Center for the Arts, which was an enormous... In Houston, yeah. In Houston, yeah, like installation that sought to kind of describe all of human history through a project I made with the at the same time with the Getty called The Temptation of the Diagram, which is a very strange thing for an artist to do. I look back on it with quite a lot of curiosity. It's like I spent several years really mapping out the history of diagrams, which I had decided were actually a kind of unappreciated form of drawing. And that in that drawing or inscription or mark making, I could sort of find a way through this puzzle of why we seem to keep doing the same things over and over again and why as an artist I seem to keep doing the same things over and over again and in that recursion some of the the more optimistic ideas about science which one could say have a kind of palette of optimism or or clarity around those bright reds and bright blues and bright golds in my particular kind of strange version of this started to reassert themselves so in, in my work, generally, red is associated with time. And the more sort of rusty it gets, like a redshift, the, the kind of more sinister the time becomes. And then in the sort of as it kind of clarifies and becomes pure, the more it sort of represents time in a kind of imminent sense. And this is a, a game that I sort of play with myself because, of course, I break those rules all the time. One more painting question before... I shift over to sculpture. Your newest paintings, there are a couple in the first show, and you showed a whole bunch of them at James Cohan Gallery in the fall of 2022, are, are very much back to the browns and the greens and the yellows. And they are thick with Max Ernst, particularly kind of Ernstian compositions and Ernstian avian forms. What about 2022 sent you to Max Ernst? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I should add I should add Ernst Ernst's palette too. Ernst plays with these same colors. No, that's that's a huge compliment. I'm an enormous fan of Max Ernst, and it's also kind of a, a compliment in another way in that the paintings were generated in a collaboration with a 
type of machine learning called generative adversarial networks, which I like to think is exactly the kind of machine that Max Ernst would have loved because it literally is a randomizer. It, I poured into it much of the history of art and the program generated all of these extraordinarily strange combinations of Ernstian sort of blurs. Let me interrupt for a quick moment to say that a number of works based on the same idea process are in the first show, um, a series called Latent Garden, and they are absolutely fascinating and weird, and I, I couldn't agree more. They are intensely Ernstian. Ernst was a game player, and you know, one of the features of his career is he has multiple bodies of work where he tries out different things. And I've always identified with the sort of not really the project because he himself was very distinct. He really didn't have a project. But the, the idea of, of artists as willing to radically change their practice by subjecting it to kind of a new set of rules. And when I was in Houston working at the, on the Moody show, I spent a lot of time at the Manil collection, which has these incredible Ernst there. And so I was thinking about Ernst a lot, but not in a very conscious way for, for many, many, many years. And also about how he operates in this kind of atemporal space. Like you look at a Max Ernst and it could almost be a science fiction book cover from the 1970s that I would have seen on my parents' bookcase. There were a lot of Max Ernst sci-fi novel covers, you know, or Max Ernst inspired. Alex Ross would agree, I think. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, you're like, it's to do with the Second World War or is it the First World War? But then you look back to Archimbaldo and previous sort of versions of biomorphic Hieronymus Bosch, you know, Goya. Leonardo monsters. Yeah, exactly. So Leonardo is the first artist in the post-Renaissance period to revive a, a Hellenistic idea that you find inspiration because it was written about by a Greek sculptor 2000 years before find inspiration in the stains in the, in the gaps between things. So when machine learning comes along, I was working at MIT and saw an early example of it. And I thought, Oh, this is both something that is capable of taking enormous amounts of information from the past, but doing it in a very contemporary way in the way that Ernst was sort of processing European art history, but also doing it at speed. So what is fascinating about the latent space that the generative adversarial networks generate is they generate hundreds of thousands of images or potential images. And I, I think we're really at the beginning of this. So, so it was my effort to sort of take a hard look at AI art, the way I, I've looked at all kinds of other emergent technologies such as computational space in the 90s. And it's, it's very unnerving because there are moments in the process as you're training the program, that's the process they call it training, where you're not entirely sure if you're training the program or it's training you to accept what has clearly been the kind of potential in art history all along. So, and I think Ernst is simply very prescient and will become, will be looking a lot harder the processes of randomization that he generated and many other artists at the same time. I think the new mid journey stuff looks, for example, a lot like Leonora Carrington's paintings, you know, these kind of etiolated figures with very, fairly random objects and kind of not quite right perspectival spaces. That world that the surrealists were looking at was where the destabilization of the image within it's still holding on to a kind of representational, thread is fascinating to me. So it was very much a, another experiment with another technology. And then I took the sort of took that as a kind of permission to really just paint the hell out of them. Yeah, they're really brushy. They're almost brushier than you've ever been. Much brushier than I've ever been. And I found this strange thing happening where I, all these artists that I loved, I, I thought I was kind of being inhabited by them. Like the ghosts of, you know, I mentioned Amy Selman or Cecily Brown, but also Carol Dunham, or Terry Winters, like I, or Cezanne, or Max Ernst. I'd be painting these pictures and thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm making it. I'm doing a Cezanne. And then I'd step back and instead this is this super hideous, weird bird monster. And I'm like, that is not a Cezanne. It's all right. The machine kind of created a, a leveling field. And I think in the way that Photoshop for artists of my generation 
became the essential tool. It's so hidden behind so many artist practices. You've mentioned a couple. I could mention more who don't really like to talk about how, how much Photoshop plays a part in their work. Machine learning is already being incorporated into programs like Photoshop. So the thing that I'm playing with there is slowly going to start changing how paintings get made, as it has done already. You mentioned Terry Winters again. I Like you, I'm a, a giant Terry Winters fan, although I've never worked on his table. <laughs> there is a sculpture in Nashville called the Dawn Line Weather Eye Variant. It's, about, it, it, it's, a, it's a gallery-sized black sculpture that more or less invites the viewer to physically move through it, to inhabit a form that is super familiar from your two-dimensional work. It's this kind of black, nebulously organic form and shape that is, for example, the armature on which the arguments is installed. It is a shape and form that can be found in lots of your paintings over over many years, and, and again, in sculptures such as this one. And it strikes me as a really you know, very much kind of the, the son or grandson of Terry Winters type type form. I'm sure you must be conscious that it is a, a form you've been using for about 20 years now. What do you think of it as being? Which I guess is maybe, <laughs> maybe a way of saying, why have you held on to it for so long and in both two and three dimensions? Uh, well, the Dawn Line is a fragment of a, probably the largest project I've ever done, which is we nominally called it the infinite line series it was a series of scaled sculptures that ultimately became a building size project called the morning line which i made in collaboration with the architects aranda lash the engineer daniel bosier and the arab advanced geometry unit that was originally commissioned by tyson bornemisa in vienna for the sevilla and biennial and the venice architecture biennial there was a lot of, a lot of people worked really hard on, on making that shape and so the piece is made up of these tetrahedral modules, and the tetrahedron, it's a truncated tetrahedron, was a shape we decided on based on the research of two physicists, Paul Steinhardt and Neil Turok, as we were trying to create a kind of crystalline architectural form that could grow in multiple directions. And every single one of the tetrahedrons can support all of the rest of the tetrahedrons, so it creates a lattice. And the lattice tiles so because it's fractal as well so there are smaller and larger versions and they all interlock and one of the really nice things about choosing this form of the tetrahedron is it's based on a drawing by a physicist called Jörg Freulich who has this lovely little sketch of the tetrahedron as defining the four forces of the universe which he says in this little caption is favored by the younger generation I've always like cherished this kind of it's like an older physicist sort of almost like patting patting this tetrahedron on the head and, and the kids today and their tetrahedra <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a super old form that you find in platonic geometry it's one of the sort of fundamental geometric forms of the universe which allowed us to make this quite amazingly sprawling shapes that in one case when we installed it in istanbul is almost the size of you know a city block because I put so much time into this project and we exhibited it multiple times in all over the world. It really became the kind of like the building block idea of like, this is a, this is a useful thing for me because it rotates and the surface patterning tells a story of the engineering inside the piece. So I, I drew all the surface drawings multiple times to make them stand up together. So the drawing is literally the structure itself is composed of the drawing and it's probably quite a rare example. I'm pretty proud of it, obviously, because where an artist was able to make a kind of architectural form that's quite quite new. I, I'm not really sure that there are other versions of this. When we made the project, there are really two kinds of architecture. There's piles of things, and then there's frames, and then there's this. It can it can really scale up to architectural scale. So that was quite an achievement. And it served as an armature, I suppose, in the way that for Terry Winters, certain kinds of found forms of crystals that he very much processed through his work and continues to process things from science. But it, it did something for me that's very 
integral to my project, which I think you alluded to at the beginning, which is although it's initially, I would have said probably 30 years ago, my project is assembled out of fragments of previous projects. There is at the same time a very strong impetus to kind of remake everything myself. So if I'm going to make an architectural structure, I have to kind of be part of originating an architectural structure that I can then paint in the pictures as architecture. Or if I'm going to work with musicians, I have to write the lyrics to the song. Or there's this kind of strange compulsion to both assemble exterior information, but then remake it, a kind of co-creation rather than just pure creation. If, if I can put some meat on that bone for a moment. So the, the, the forms that are in the morning line, uh, which you first made and installed in 2008, and that are through the piece at the Frist, go all the way back to at least ink drawings such as Everyone Belongs to Everyone Else, which is now in MoMA's collection, or on walls and in aluminum a work such as Proposition Player, I think I'm remembering the title right, which is like 2004-ish, three or four. So when you talk about building upon, you know, we're talking about a decade before, almost a decade before the manifestation of the work in 08 and over a decade since. Yeah, I, I think there was this drawing on the history of science as a, a beautiful sort of puzzle of what supports everything else. And so when you make a line, of course, it's supported by the sheet. It looks unsupported, like an artist can sort of draw. But really, there's always something there. There is no kind of gap in the universe. And the morning line project was an effort to kind of manifest that in three and ultimately four dimensions because the piece is also a sound sculpture that supports multiple speakers that play different musical works inside it so it exists people's experience of it is very much within time as well as space and yeah for me it was like like the gift of being invited by Tyson Bornemisa to make a work on this scale that could support a line I had tried it before with various works at Masmoka, very large-scale works, like the sort of idea that maybe you can make a line that just sort of hangs in space. And, you know, it turns out it's harder than it sounds. <laughs> Matthew Ritchie, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler, for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.